Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Gina Champion Kane has made headlines for the past three years for scandalous reasons, but for decades before that, she captured more positive media attention. She was the cover girl for downtown San Diego's revitalization beginning in the 1990s. She appeared on magazine covers and newspaper articles. She was lauded as a deal maker, a real estate guru, and a restaurateur. Here's Gina speaking at an economic roundtable in 2017. But I, I think that I understood it uh, when I thought about it a little bit in the sense that, you know, as a real estate developer and, and business owner, uh, I also own 10 restaurants. I know I'm crazy. Uh, some retail establishments and other variety of businesses. But uh, my net, my core is, is real estate. Um, and I have to, being a chess player, I'm always trying, trying to think ahead as to what is my next move. Um, it's not going to be business as usual. It never has been. It, it won't be, certainly, moving forward. And, and how am I going to continue to keep my properties uh, leased up? Um, how I'm, am I going to be able to move forward uh, through all the red tape uh, and, and market uh, conditions, uh, which aren't the most favorable. Gina Champion Kane was a business powerhouse with a big smile, long black hair, and a charming personality. She seemed invincible. San Diego even named a day after her. Now she's a convicted felon with a title no one else can claim, the architect of San Diego's biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Over the course of eight years, Gina Champion Kane conned hundreds of people, including longtime friends, acquaintances, and major financial institutions, out of about $400 million. Her fall from grace seemed unimaginable two decades ago as a seemingly successful entrepreneur who owned dozens of businesses and employed hundreds of people. In a new two-part series by the San Diego Union-Tribune, reporters Lori Weisberg and Greg Moran dissect how Champion Kane became so adept at deceiving so many for so long. In this episode, you'll hear Gina Champion Kane's story in three parts, her rise, her scheme, and her fall. You'll hear from Lori and Greg and from two of Gina's friends. Lori, could we begin with some background? Who is Gina Champion Kane, and especially who was Gina Champion Kane before she became known as a criminal? Well, she um, she was really uh, positioned herself as a developer, a, a real estate maven, so to speak, um, and she was very interested and involved in, to an extent, in trying to redevelop downtown San Diego before it is the downtown we know today. So um, she would have you believe that she did quite a bit of redevelopment. Um, she takes credit for bringing the House of Blues to San Diego that we all know that's in downtown San Diego. But she also says that she actually developed a building that, that houses the House of Blues. Um, that I, in our reporting could find no evidence that she actually built it, but um, there are those who will give her her due and, and agree that she was to a degree instrumental in luring that entertainment enterprise to come to San Diego. Um, there are other projects in Little Italy and um, in downtown that she claims that she was the developer of, um, lofts and condos. And 
there are there are those who also were involved in those developments who would dispute that and say she wasn't involved. But she really tried to um, give that image, and she hired a PR person who early on positioned her to um, be kind of a name person in downtown. There were cover stories talking about real estate that she owned, that she wanted to develop. She tried to develop the, redevelop the California theater. That never happened, um, although there are many others that have tried to develop that as well. So she was in the news a lot. She was on board. She, at one point, she got appointed to the main redevelopment arm of the city. It doesn't exist anymore, called Center City Development Corporation. So she was on the downtown partnership. So she was a well-known name. And when you thought of downtown development, she did such a good job in marketing herself that you believe that she had done more than what she had really done when you look back at the record and see what did she truly develop downtown. But that was her big, she wasn't a hospitality person back there. She wasn't a restaurateur. She, she had started in the late 90s her own company to do development in real estate. Here's what people who knew Gina had to say about her. This is Howard Greenberg, president of Trilogy Real Estate Management. He met Gina in the late 1980s. They worked in the same industry and they were also neighbors in Mission Hills. Uh, she was a fun, nice uh, person. We, uh, you know, we, she was very professional in what she was doing uh, work-wise. And other than that, she was, um, as I've described Gina as a kind of a, a guy's gal. She liked to, uh, to do a lot of things uh socially uh athletically uh those kind of things she was you know into golf and she'd play poker she'd smoke cigars she'd yuck it up all those kind of things that uh um you know that normally in those days were were uh were were guy kind of things this is Helen Rowe Allen. She's an educator, entrepreneur, an attorney, and law professor who is now retired. She and Gina were close friends. She was well-liked. Uh, she had a quiet side to her that I enjoyed, and I don't think that was fully disclosed to others. She uh, was a beautiful-looking woman, tall, always dressed appropriately, she gathered people to her. She didn't say a great deal on reflection when she was in a group setting. She was more the big smile and she would go from one person to another. She had, she had quite a, a following, shall we say. Uh, so by all accounts, it, it did seem like she was on top of the world, but litigation you dug up tells a different story. What did you find? Um, well, obviously, there's the there's the litigation that stemmed from the Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Attorney's Office um, starting in 2019 when we all became aware of the Ponzi scheme that she engineered. We, we didn't know about that until the news broke that she had been charged with securities fraud and then and that it just morphed into a criminal investigation as well. So that's been well documented since since 2019 and she's since pleaded guilty to that. But there is considerable litigation preceded that that, um, that Greg Moran did a deep dive into, and he, he found quite a bit of interesting material. 
Yeah, she had been as, you know, a lot of business people or people in business, you know, will get sued. And if the bigger uh, profile you have in business, more likely you're to attract suits. But, you know, when we began to research this and after she had been charged, you know, a lot of those suits, which were, you know, sitting in, in plain sight in the Superior Court files downtown and it were 10 or or more years older at that point, um, kind of cast a, a you know a new light on on her career because now being accused of this fraud, you kind of went back and and looked at some of these lawsuits from people that she worked with or had encountered, and they kind of um, illuminated a lot of things. And I think one of them was um, kind of the gap. Uh, between sort of her public image or what she wanted people to see her publicly as a very uh, influential, I think, uh, player downtown in the downtown redevelopment and what, you know, people who are also in that world, which which can be a very, you know, frankly, male-dominated, uh, very, you know, alpha, very sharp elbows kind of business uh, thought of her and, and, and dealt with her, um, in, in years before. So they showed things like, you know, she was, you know, claiming credit or, or asserting credit over, um, portions of development projects, downtown kind of buildings, um, uh, and other things that, um, the people who were in business with her said, was an exaggeration of her role, that she was not a co-developer or co-financer or anything like that, but was um, involved with them, but more in kind of a consultancy or sales type of role. And it was just interesting to go back and read through those um, uh, in light of, you know, these charges that, that came forward in 2019. And it kind of, as I said, I think at the time they were filed, they probably didn't attract too much attention. But uh, in hindsight, they helped kind of fill in some of the, the background and the details about who she was. Yeah. And, and you know, that's kind of interesting what um, Greg just mentioned. They didn't attract much attention. So shortly after the news broke about these SEC charges, um, another reporter and I did go back and thought, oh, well, let's look at what kind of lawsuits have been filed. And we, we found some of these and Greg's found still others. Um, but you were you realized well, she was kind of a big figure then. And these, these lawsuits didn't come to light until, you know, after she was charged by the SEC, because it, obviously they were settled. And so you don't, there wasn't, there weren't trials. So maybe it's understandable that the lawsuits didn't come to light, that they were private affairs, but it's interesting, you know, after the fact to see that. And also a lot of the the movers and shakers that I talked to both on and off the record for this story that were involved in downtown um, they didn't speak up at the time saying, oh, yeah, she, she's claiming more. She's claiming to do far more than she really did. They're willing to say it now, and, and they don't even want to broadcast it that much now. But it's interesting that they didn't want to talk about it then when they feel strongly now that um, she wasn't who she, who she claimed to be in the, in the downtown development world. They just obviously let it go and for the most part, let the magazine cover stories go and, and let her do her promoting. Um, but years later, they, they are acknowledging that they don't think she did anything to the degree she said she did. A really amazing part of your reporting is that you were able to put together the story without ever speaking to Gina Champion-Kane. How did you go about that? Well, obviously, it's a, it's a 
challenge when the subject of your story isn't going to speak to you. And we did reach out a number of times. I, you know, went through the formal channels with the federal prison camp where she's staying, where she's staying, where she's imprisoned. Um, and she rejected that. I early on, I sent her a, you know, a personal letter. Um, again, she rejected it. And more recently, I sent another, sent another one, and again, she declined to be interviewed. So, I mean, we never had any expectations really that she would talk to us. So we just did um, what any reporter would do: is we reached out to as many people as possible that you know could talk to to talk to us about her background, going back you know decades, as we said development world. We also, I mean, court documents are really helpful. I mean, lawsuits and these settled lawsuits and um, another thing and her plea agreement was really helpful. And then one thing that came to light, you know, earlier this year that we were able to get our hands on was a deposition that she was required to do as part of lawsuits being filed against the title company that was um, held the money for these um, liquor license loans that she that she fraudulently um, said she was making. Um, th those depositions in her own words, we have a video and a transcript. That, that was really helpful too in getting certain things in her words. Uh, granted, her answers to a lot of questions were yes, no, and correct. But every once in a while, she would, she would continue to talk a little more about questions she was asked about her, her past. So, all those kinds of sources were helpful. The combination of interviews, depositions, court documents. I I, I know Greg has his own techniques. Yeah, I think in total we we probably interviewed. I think we counted up about forty or fifty people, probably close to fifty people. That was interviews that you know, almost all of them were on the record. There were a few that we talked to people and they and they did want to be quoted, but we kind of kept that to a minimum in the story. But they were helpful for the, for the reporting. So you know, we we get, we contacted those people partly. As Lori's saying, you know, every time you'd find a document or, or or read a file or something, there are names in there, and you just kind of start creating a daisy chain. You just start thinking one name to another and finding those people and and kind of uh, talking to them. So even though we were able to speak to quite a few people in some capacity or another, some more illuminating than others, I think we probably contacted half again as many people, you know, probably another 20, 30 people who either didn't respond or didn't want to talk or, you know, just were not available. So you know, we're just trying to cast a, a wider net as possible, not just to, to kind of find out, you know, uh, you know, the negative details or whatever, but primarily because she wasn't talking to us, you know, we have an obligation to, to be fair and, and, and to try to uh, depict as complete a picture of her as possible. Um, and, when somebody doesn't cooperate, it doesn't mean that, you know, that eliminates your responsibility to be fair uh, and to try to, you know, give an even uh, sort of portrait of a person. Not everybody is all bad or all good. So, um, you know, a lot of this was just kind of, you know, going step to step. And when, you know, we talked to people and finished talking to them and say, well, who else should we talk to? Can, you know, who else would, who would know about this or things like that? And just kind of build the profile of the person based on a lot of, a lot of, instead of just one interview with the person who can tell you who they are, you kind of got to build like a lot of data points and, and the portrait kind of comes in focus that way rather than kind of one, 
one shot. It's a lot of a lot of pieces that add up, kind of a mosaic thing that add up to the picture that you end up with. Okay, Lori, what do we know about the Ponzi scheme? Well, from what we can tell, it started in 2011. There's some, some will say 2012, but um, we've talked to people who were the first, among the first investors. And so we believe it was late in 2011. And um, we believe that, you know, she got the idea because she was, that was right about the time when she was just starting to pivot to being a restaurateur. And it was sort of an accidental foray into being a restaurateur. She was redeveloping a piece of property in Pacific Beach, which is the was the former Lamont Street Grill, very popular restaurant there. And they were gonna be closing up shot and she wanted to get the property and redevelop it more for either residential or maybe some offices. But the community was so, um, they were so in love with that restaurant. They did not want to see it go. So she, so she reversed course and decided to um, do a restaurant there. And so that's where she first learned about what it takes to acquire a liquor license. And that was the whole scope of her scheme. It was making high interest loans to cash strap restaurant and bar owners who didn't have the, um, who didn't have the money to put up for um, in escrow, so to speak, to acquire a liquor license. And so that's where we believe she got the idea um, for that. So, I mean, it started, as Lori said, you know, kind of based on her real world experience and then uh, uh, being in the restaurant industry. And, you know, briefly, her pitch to, to investors or people who she ended up defrauding was this. It said, look, it's, if you're opening a restaurant, it can be very capital intensive. And if you want to uh, have a liquor license with that, which is where a lot of restaurants make their money. Um, it's it's kind of expensive. Plus, because Gina Kane would tell people you have to deposit a su- substantial amount of money, tens of thousands of dollars usually, with the state alcohol beverage control agency, which issues the licenses to sell liquor while they do a background check on. And her pitch was, you know, for a lot of would-be restaurateurs or even people who are into it, this was a real stretch because they need all their capital to fix up their restaurant, get the equipment, do all like that. So her idea was, and her, her the, the scheme essentially was to um, get investors to give her money, uh, uh, which she would bundle into, um, you know, d- deposits, I guess you could say. And that were attached to specific applications uh, from restaurants uh, to get a liquor license. And she would say, you give me this money, it will go into an escrow account at Chicago Title, which is a very uh, well-known, very well-respected in the nation's leading title companies in an escrow account there where no one will have access to it. If the state ends up approving this application for this person to have a liquor license, you get all your money back plus this rather high interest that she was charging uh, to the investor. So, and if it doesn't go through, the state denies the license, you get your money back. So it was kind of like a almost no, no lose kind of thing. You know, you invest and you get your investment plus, if the deal doesn't go through, you get your investment. I think a little bit more after that coming back. Um, 
And she connected it with Chicago Title, which had a lot of cachet and credibility with people. And uh, it sounded plausible, you know, and she had some documents that would back it up. She would show people a list of uh, application numbers. You know, the, the ABC has every time you apply for a license, they give you a, a alphanumeric kind of code number and she would show them this is for this uh, application and so forth. Uh, and, you know, she got a lot of people to bite on. In reality, what was happening was this, is that those uh, applications were bogus. There they were no restaurant or no business attached to them. They were just numbers that she was, I think, appealing off a website or there were dead licenses or something. But most importantly, uh, the money that people would give her would go to Chicago Title, but unbeknownst to anyone, she had pretty much unfettered access to it. So instead of it being in kind of a lockbox that's protected, it was uh, kind of in a cash drawer that she was the only person who had a key to. Uh, and she could withdraw it and take it out uh, as much uh, as she needed or wanted. Um, and she was able to, to kind of keep this scheme going for a number of years, partly because, uh, you know, people, when, when, the, uh, Apple, when the, the investment was supposed to come due, she would say, oh, the, uh, the ABC has approved it. Uh, do you want to roll over your money into another applicant? And most people said, yeah, sure, I'll keep it going, you know, let it ride, let it ride. So not very many people kind of wanted or demanded their money back. It was in this was kind of an investment that in a way was on automatic pilot and was um, seemed to be very secure. It was producing results. There were some people who did ask for money back early on and they would get it. They would get some of their money back. So it seemed to be legit, but it was uh, really a, Pretty much a total fiction. Well, what was she using the money on? You know, a, a lot of it, uh, you know, this went on for eight years, almost nine years. So it's hard to, hard to kind of do a dollar for dollar accounting. Um, you know, a lot of the money was used. Um, in fact, I, I think most of it was used to support her other businesses. You know, as Lori said, she had this kind of a uh, pretty wide uh, portfolio of businesses that was everything from restaurants to vacation rentals, um, real estate development, you know, boutique, all these things. Um, and, uh, you know, that were had varying success or, or unsuccess, really. And it, it seems like, you know, certainly if you look at an accounting that the uh, receiver who was appointed in this case after she got... Uh, in trouble with the SEC and was in charge of kind of sorting out the business and trying to pay back investors. Uh, the receiver did an accounting, which is in the court documents, which pretty much show uh, in one chart that is kind of you know annual loss for the ANI companies and the annual uh, amount that year that she was taking in on the Ponzi scheme, and it's almost one to one. You know, like she lose, I forget the numbers exactly, but twenty two million or something. And the Ponzi scheme would take in 23 million that year. I mean, so it, you know, based on that and what the receiver told us, most of this money was being used to prop up for other businesses and probably to start businesses. Um, some of it did get paid back or paid out to uh, investors, but not much of it. And there was a portion that did go, and this is kind of what the prosecutors emphasized in their in their criminal case against her did go to her lifestyle, right? I mean, she was, she was to me, pretty well off uh, before this began. 
But, you know, she ended up buying several houses, uh, very large ones out in the desert, one up in Carmel. Uh, she had a nice car to drive her, you know, and, 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 and other things like that. Um, but to me, Lori has a different take. I think a lot of this went to her, her ongoing A&I uh, empire, which was not as, as, as solvent as uh, it may have appeared to be. Yeah, right, right. And that and that that accounting by the court appointed receiver is is really telling. They say um, they've said repeatedly, they say at least 60 million went to um, propping up her businesses. And while we do say that the, the scheme itself reeled in about 400 million, um, the receiver has said that there were close to maybe 200 billion dollars in net losses. So some of it was to give the appearance of, um, of a legitimate scheme some of that was going back to pay um, early investors as new investors kind of came in, which is the typical Ponzi scheme, the money coming in would go pay, would pay back the earlier investors, um, some of whom were demanding their money, others who weren't. But so, so yeah, it was to keep the Ponzi scheme afloat, to keep her businesses afloat. And then um, while the U.S. Attorney's Office does use the word lavish, lifestyle, that's not a misplaced adjective, but I, you know, I know when I've read about other con artists and other major Ponzi scheme artists, you think of an even more high on the hog lifestyle. So she didn't have, you know, the private yachts and planes. Um, she didn't travel the world. Um, you don't, you don't see that kind of stuff. Yes, she had private boxes at, and suites at the at Padres and, and Charger Stadiums. And she bought at one point a more than $20,000 golf court. And, but other than that, you know, yes, it was a very comfortable lifestyle. Um, her, the amount of money she was paying herself wasn't in the millions of dollars each year. It was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, um, which you, you would expect far more than that for a CEO of a company that employed hundreds of employees. So, um, yes, she did have a lavish lifestyle, but not as lavish as you would think, given the volume of money coming through this scheme. I know it's a hard question to answer, but how did she find herself in this situation? Do you think she set out to to do this? And and of course, that is the, the big question. And um, even in this deposition that I referred to earlier in January, there's an attorney representing Chicago Title, um, who we should mention has been sued by nearly all of the victims because they went after what they saw as a deep pocket who they claimed was culpable in this in this scheme. Um, Chicago Title has never admitted culpability, although it has settled with um, most of the victims. But anyway, in this in this deposition, this attorney for Chicago Title is questioning her and said, "Well, how did you get the idea? Did you?" He was being a little snarky at one point. He said, "So did you did you get a book like Ponzi Scheme for Dummies? Is that what you did?" And, you know, she didn't really answer. And he just wondered, you know, how, how did you, how did you even come up with the idea? And he brought up the, you know, the restaurant um, that she was going to do in Pacific Beach. And she never really, she never really answers that question. And I'm not sure any of us can ever answer that question. I'm not so sure that this was a deliberate act that she had planned years in advance. Um, as I said, I think she, she got the idea when she became a restaurant owner herself. And then, you know, who knows, maybe she saw that, you know, maybe I will make some legitimate loans or, or maybe I'll try to do this and get some money 
And but she obviously saw that she needed a lot of capital to keep her her business empire growing. And I think there's a lot of people who think that she was so driven by her ambition and her desire to to be a success and not a failure that she kept the Ponzi scheme going and didn't make a single loan, thinking always in the back of her mind, I'll make this right. I'll raise enough money. I'll take my my patio branded restaurants public. I'll do something and I'm going to get a bunch of money and I'll pay everybody back and no one will be the wiser. So we, you know, it's all speculation. Um, but I, you know, this are some of the things I've, you know, theories I've come up with and others um, in the course of reporting out this story. Yeah, I think it, it, I think it's like that, something along those lines. I think in, in many ways, it's sort of, you know, an outgrowth of, of kind of what a lot of the story is about, which is her um, public image or her, or, or her, you know, attempts, how she wanted herself portrayed or seen publicly. You know, one of the, the things in the story is a, a lawsuit that was filed against her long before she even got into the Ponzi scheme a couple of years before where she had raised some money from investors uh, ostensibly for one uh, uh, project that she was uh, working on or trying to get work on a development project downtown. But it turned out that she used it to, um, you know, pay off uh, uh, debts and, and other obligations she had in other parts of her business without telling uh, the people she was raising the money that that's where it was going towards. And one of the investors sued her. And it was in the context of that lawsuit, which again, didn't attract much attention at the time, that uh, you know she was deposed uh, by the attorney for the investor who, who had been uh, misled. And it was in that that she said something that's in, in the story, which I thought was a very telling um, comment. She said, like, you know, uh, I, I'm a deal maker. You know, I, I make deals and and I make people money, and that's all I want to do. That's kind of a paraphrase, but but the the sense that she saw herself as a deal maker to me, in, in a kind of dime store psychology way, was very interesting. Because as I said earlier, that that business of commercial real estate downtown development is you know pretty very competitive, um, and it is I think mostly dominated by men. And you know she wanted to be. Uh, a player in that, and she wanted to be seen as somebody who could, uh, you know, compete with the big boys, who could, uh, you know, hold their hold their liquor with them, and and you know, hold her own in uh, in building projects. And the reality never really kind of caught up with that desire or that vision of herself. And I think it's in that kind of space that she began to see that this Ponzi scheme would sort of um, complete the picture for her, the picture of herself that she wanted to see. That's all kind of a long way around. Uh, it's not excusing what she did, but I think a lot of, a lot of this, uh, as Lori said, nobody you know, probably doesn't, she didn't start out and think, oh, here's a way that I can rip off people because the very first people involved in this scheme were her very close friends and people she had known for many years. She had not business associates, but uh, longtime friends and things. Uh, and then it kind of grew from there. And I think once she got into it, I, I mean, every, I covered a lot of Ponzi schemes. You know, they all, they're all saying, you know, oh, I was going to pay everybody back. <laughs> I was going to make it all, make everybody whole. Was just give me another. And then the government landed on me and, 
and uh, that's why everybody's in pain. So that's that's kind of a common thread in a lot of Ponzi schemes. You know, whether or not she believed that or whether she was enjoying the kind of status and buoyancy that that this scheme was giving her, that she was, you know, a, a very prominent person. Everything that she, it sounds to me like, wanted to be and envisioned herself to be, but wasn't able to do kind of legitimately. Lori, when did Gina Champion Kane's luck begin to change? So, you know, during the course of the Ponzi scheme, um, we've been able to see from some litigation that there were times when it almost fell apart, but she was able to salvage it. Um, but we only know that it, we can only trace when the subpoenas started to be issued by the SEC, because we don't know, um, we've never been able to find out like who was the whistleblower and who, um, who told them and, and when that was and when the SEC actually formally started their investigation. We do know that they started issuing subpoenas to key people in May of 2019. And then just a few months later in August, in late August of 2019 is when they issued the, you know, the charges that they were, she was being charged with a securities fraud. So it was sometime in 2019 that, that, that cards really truly started to, to collapse and fall for her. So, um, and, and those, those uh, the interviews the SEC did, the interviews the SEC did with those key people, are ultimately helped fuel you know their release of charges later later in the year. So that that's kind of when we know. But it, it is remarkable for how long the Ponzi scheme ran without it being detected. That's I think that's pretty unusual. Like I said, it started in late 2011, and it wasn't until um, later in 2019 that. Um, she was ultimately found out. But to sustain that for that many years without word getting out, people not doing enough questioning to finally show that this was fraudulent, I think that's pretty pretty remarkable. Um, you, could, you could almost argue that was one of her sort of biggest successes, although it's obviously not a success because she got found out. But that will be her legacy, I think, that she could sustain a Ponzi scheme for almost eight years. How did she react after being caught? Well, we don't know how she emotionally reacted, but we do know from the documents, namely uh, the plea deal, because she ultimately did plead guilty to criminal charges. Um, and we do know from her sentencing report um, that even, even as she knew that the SEC knew what was going on and that she was actually cooperating, she was quickly taking moves to, to lessen the damage. She was instructing employees to delete emails. She was instructing them to shred documents. Um, she was um, just basically trying to hide evidence that could make things even worse, even though she had already um, said she was gonna cooperate and and go, you know, and she and she knew that she was being charged. She did take these kinds of actions, and that's why one of the charges is obstruction of justice, because she was in fact. Um, trying to get in the way of, of the federal Department of Justice to um, prosecute her by trying to, to get rid of evidence. Here's how Helen and Howard reacted when they learned of Gina's criminal activity. 
I, I was surprised, but not shocked. Uh, more shocking to me was the rush, rush to condemnation, um, to a virulent uh, peeling away of all those who had admired her and benefited from her association. Uh, it was so quick and so dramatic that uh, I found that rather surprising. As to her bad conduct, well, San Diego is the sunny place for shady people. And I'm old enough to remember all the bad guys and the bad acts and having been an attorney and been in a business environment and been a business owner, been a business lawyer, I was not shocked. I was surprised, but not shocked. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, I had said many times for previous years that it was, it was a little befuddling how the, uh, the business that she grew into from the real estate business being the, the restaurant and, and entertainment business uh, wasn't really in her lane. Uh, and it grew very rapidly. And from all the tenants that I have that run businesses in the same arena, uh, everyone was kind of shaking their head as to how, how this behemoth came about and how, you know, how it could be as successful as it was being portrayed. Um, so I'd say that it wasn't a big shock to a lot of people that there was something that was amiss. I, I don't believe anybody really knew what it was because I, I, I wasn't approached nor was anyone else I know um, in the industry uh, approached to invest in this the scheme that she was perpetrating. But just in general, um, to pivot from the real estate business to this, again, behemoth restaurant entertainment business in such a short time just didn't didn't add up. Um, yeah, tell me about this 15 year sentence. What is her life like now? Well, we we kind of know from some letters that she's written to people um, what it's like. I mean, it is a it is a federal prison camp. It's like a satellite camp. And it's more kind of like a dormitory style um, setup. So you're not, you're not in, you know, you think of jail cells. She's not in a cell, but more like, like what you think in a, in a dorm room. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of activities up here. You know, she's as, as ambitious as she was in her pre-prison life. She's equally ambitious um, in prison. She's, she's reading voraciously. She's exercising. She's mentoring fellow prisoners. At one point, she said that she was helping some um, get their GEDs or, you know, coach them. Um, she talked about some kind of hospitality program she was trying to start at the, at the prison. So she's, she's very involved and, and, and very ambitious and very driven, just, just the way she would normally be and, and apparently trying to get the most out of her, her time there. Uh, so you, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's prison. You don't have freedom. It's not like, real life so it's I don't mean to make it sound like it's a walk in the park where she is but she is 
apparently trying to make the most of it and and trying to help her fellow in, inmates and, and do some education and mentoring. She's also been apparently uh, cooperating a little bit with uh, the prosecutors. Uh, we were told that when she was sentenced more than a year ago. But I think it's interesting that since then, no one has been criminally charged, right, Lori? I don't think there's been any other indictments or charges in this. Right. So one waiting. has to wonder how much... Pardon? I was going to say, we keep waiting. Like you said, there haven't been. We keep wondering, will there be more to follow? At this point, you have to think, are there going to be any more? Or did she really not have have anything of great value to to give to the government? So so maybe her her efforts in prison, not just, you know, to kind of pass the time, but to kind of help the government with the hopes, I'm sure, that of one day being able to uh, reduce some of that 15 years off her sentence by dint of her cooperation, you know, may not come to pass. You may have to do all that 15. This is a clip of Gina Champion Kane testifying at a deposition in 2022. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth under penalty of perjury? I do. Did you seek out a book? See, how do I start and run a Ponzi scheme? Now, and the ironic thing is I was actually a victim of a Ponzi scheme. So I know Ponzi schemes never work. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where the idea came from, isn't it? Yeah, they never work. Ponzi schemes never work. Everyone knows that. I'm not filing any motion. I am living my life as a a very good prisoner here at Dublin. I teach classes, I mentor people, and I'm a a very strong member of this community here. I'm not filing anything. Uh, I'm answering because I was subpoenaed to answer in these depositions. I'm gonna do my job of helping whoever I can help. I'm I'm being honest, I have nothing to lie for. I'm, (laughs) I'm already incarcerated. You can continue to skew me all you want. It's not going to affect me either way. I'm already in prison. I'm already being punished. I'm already remorseful. I'm already uh, atoning for my sins. And uh, I'm telling you the uh, God answer truth. You don't like it, what you hear some of the time, but that's what I'm doing. We'll leave you today with a couple of final thoughts. First, you'll hear from Howard Greenberg and then from Helen Rowe Allen. I have said before that that I, I did like Gina, I do like Gina. I did think she was very bright and engaging. And, and when she stayed in her lane, she was, uh, you know, a professional. Um, and I feel sorry that she, for whatever reason, felt that she needed to or was put in a position to or just felt that she, um, you know, wanted to perpetrate this scheme and, and, and how many people it ended up hurting. But, uh, you know, again, if, if she stayed in her lane, I think she could have been successful in her own right. Well, I understand why Gina and I uh, got along so well. Think of it. She was a leader in the business community. She'd gone to law school. Uh, she was well known and highly regarded. She was involved in politics and people in power. Uh, In my day, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, I was involved in in, and with with the modicum of success in those same interests. 
And so we we had a, a, a generational distinction that both of us found satisfying, a kind of tear and compare. Oh, do you remember this? Well, no, but tell me, <laughs> is what she would say. She, she was a relative newcomer to San Diego. I was an old timer. So we had that and it was sustenance for both of us. Um, I was not involved in her bad acts and I was never asked by her for an investment opportunity. She, she never uh, suggested that I be a part of this liquor license fiasco. I don't think she would have dared, but that's just a hypothecation on my part. I, I don't, I certainly cannot read uh, Gina Champion Kane's uh, mind, that's quite evident. The two part series on the rise and fall of Gina Champion Kane is now online at San Diego Union Thank you to Lori, Greg, Howard, and Helen for joining me, and thank you for listening. <laughs>